Hey, thanks so much for joining us here for Daily in Christ podcast. I'm Mark Van Oos, and it's a joy to be able to join you as we dig into the glorious truths of the New Covenant in this series called Hebrews, The Glory of the New Covenant. I have called the book of Hebrews the Magna Carta of the New Covenant. Sad to say, many Christians are really woefully, um, they just don't understand the New Covenant. And in the modern church, unfortunately, there is very little teaching about the New Covenant. And yet, the New Covenant is how the Christian life works. And so the importance of studying in the book of Hebrews, and uh, we are right now in Hebrews chapter 5, and you know, the book of Hebrews just gets us taken up with Jesus, who Jesus is, what he has accomplished, and right now the focus is Jesus as our high priest. You know, we can hear the term priest, and maybe there's a religious connotation that you have behind that idea of priest. And yet there is a biblical idea of what a priest is, and Hebrews chapter 5 will get into that biblical idea, and specifically the difference that Jesus as a high priest is for us. You know, under the law covenant, there were many priests. Uh, they served in various capacities in the service of God and for the people uh, in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple. And then there was one priest, the high priest who was selected, who had the honor to go on the day of atonement into the Holy of Holies, bringing blood. Well, we will find out how the under the law covenant, it was actually an inferior priesthood. The blood that they went into the uh, Holy of Holies was not their own. It was the blood of animals. And so we begin to see the contrast between the covenant of law, or what some people call the old covenant, and the covenant of grace, or the new covenant. And Hebrews continually talks about the superiority of the new covenant. Well, let's read the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 5. But before we do that, let's just turn to the Lord right now in prayer. God, we thank you that you are more than enough. You alone are God. And you, Lord, are the source of all that is good, of all that is lovely and holy and righteous and true. Thank you, Lord, that yours is a heart of holy love. And God, we thank you again for your son Jesus, for his life, for his ministry, for his sacrifice, for his high priesthood, for his blood, for his offering, for his death and resurrection for us. Dear Father, as we turn to your holy word, I pray that you by the Spirit would work in our hearts and minds to bring fresh revelation of your Son, Jesus. And specifically here, Jesus as our perfect compassionate high priest. Lord, help us to know you better in deeper ways. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. 
For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay, let's uh, walk through these verses with the help of the Lord to really uncover, uh, first of all, the idea of what a high priest is and how Jesus is our perfect high priest. And you know, as we do, I'm first struck with the thought, why do we even need a priest in the first place? Well, the reality of priests in the Bible is an indicator that our salvation, our relationship with God is not based upon ourselves, but it's based upon the work of someone else. In the covenant of law, it was a type and shadow of the high priest, the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this opening verse of uh, Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about the qualifications of high priest. And it says, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So we see, first of all, that the high priest must be a man. And you say, Mark, that's pretty obvious, but think about this. This is one of the reasons why Jesus, the Son of God, was made the Son of Man. Again, a qualification that he needed was to be a man. Now, notice God's heart in all this as touching our real needs. It says, from among men, for men in things pertaining to God. So you hear God's heart in this, things pertaining that involve our relationship with God in 1b. And then in verse 1c, it says, offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. And then in verse 2, it says, he has compassion on those who are going astray. Again, this is a reflection of the heart of God uh, in our relationship with God. God dealing with the problem that we have in sinfulness and God having compassion even on the one that is going astray. Notice that those, uh, it says in verse 2, that the high priest has compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. Someone like me. Now, the opposite of a compassionate person is someone who is stern and doesn't understand us. This compassion doesn't mean, does not mean that God says, well, yeah, you know, it's okay. I understand your sin and weakness. You can't help yourself. And then he just leaves us trapped in our sin and weakness and the consequences of our sin and weakness. No, the compassion of God means that he understands us because he has gone through what we go through and He actually aids us, helps us, and rescues us from sin, from the penalty of sin. The law covenant priest, however, when we look at that high priest, was a mere man, and he was also one who sinned. And that particular law covenant priest would say, 
Well, I understand your weaknesses and sin because I am weak and sinful too. And did you know that because of this, the law covenant priest, the old covenant priest, could never remove sins? Because of this, in verse 3, because he was sinful, it was required that he had to offer sacrifices not only for the people, but also for himself. Verse 3 says, because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. But you see, Jesus, as our new covenant high priest, not only dealt with our temptations, but all temptations that man has ever faced. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And yet he faced all of that without sin. That means that Jesus conquered sin, and therefore he is able to conquer sin in me. Jesus is a high priest who has compassion upon me, not because he was subject to weakness like the weakness of someone who sins. He was not subject to weakness because he is the omnipotent son of God, but he has compassion because he was tempted in every point, even as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus can say, in essence, I understand your weakness and sin because I was tempted in every point. I face the temptations you face. But as the Son of God, I am without sin and therefore am fully qualified and able to offer a perfect and complete sacrifice to completely remove your sins forever. Now, folks, that is good news about our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says uh, in verse 4, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. You see, that high priest couldn't say, hmm, I think I'm going to be a high priest when I grow up. No, they were uh, put in that role because they were called by God. You know, the high priests were of the tribe of Levi, weren't they? So you literally had to be born. In order to be a priest, you had to be born in the right tribe. Well, no one can control their birth. And furthermore, that person who is a high priest, is selected as such, called by God. And that's comforting for us because that is God protecting us from spiritual malpractice. God is the one who is doing the choosing. Once again, the problems of the law covenant, the old covenant priesthood was that even the high priest himself was subject to weakness. He had sins. He himself was therefore inherently impure, defiled, and therefore he had to offer a sacrifice not only for the people, but also for himself. He had to bring that kind of sacrifice. Furthermore, it says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, that they were mortal. They died, and they could not continue as a priest forever. But Jesus can it, and we'll find out more about that in Hebrews uh, chapter 7. Point by point, we see that Jesus himself is qualified and called to be our high priest. All right, uh, looking at verse 6, it says this. I'm sorry, in verse 5, it says, So also, Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was said to him, 
It was he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, well, let's let's dig into the question, how was Jesus made a priest? In fact, let me just say this, um, pop quiz. I had mentioned a little bit earlier that the high priest was one who was born of Levi, of the tribe of Levi, right? What tribe was Jesus born of? Was he born of the tribe of Levi? No. He was born of the tribe of Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So immediately the question comes up, wait a minute, he's not qualified to be high priest because he's born of the wrong tribe. Well, it turns out, and again, we will find out more later on in Hebrews chapter 7, the details of this, but the whole issue about being a priest according to the order of Melchizedek is significant to dealing with that qualification of Jesus being a special high priest. So, In verse 5, it says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus didn't glorify himself. This was not something that he put upon himself. Jesus himself testified repeatedly. You can see this in the Gospel of John, that his glory came from the Father. John chapter 8, verse 54, and John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus was made high priest because he was God's own son. It says, you are my son. Today I have begotten of you. I've begotten you. That's an interesting point right there. Jesus was not of the line of sinning Adam. He wasn't begotten of Adam. He was begotten of God the Father, a pure line, a holy line line. Then in verse 6, it says this, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek means literally king of righteousness. King of righteousness. And a superiority of the new covenant high priest as opposed to the law covenant, old covenant high priest, is that Jesus is not only a priest, but he is a king of righteousness. That means that Jesus is the great priest king. And again, he is of the order of Melchizedek, a lot more information coming up about that in Hebrews chapter 7. Needless to say, he is indeed a legitimate high priest, and it's a fresh beginning. Then in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7, it says this, beginning in verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Well, what is the significance of what it says here about Jesus offering prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears, as well as learning obedience by the things he suffered? Well, first of all, we can see right here with the vehement cries and tears that compassionate high priest. 
That is significant right there. You know, those cries and tears meet with the awful tragedy of sin in the human race, with the awful tragedy of death, with the awful scope of the horror of sin in the human race. And his offering of prayers and supplications wasn't some weak prayer. It was vehement cries and tears that met and surpassed the problem. It says that uh, Jesus was heard by God the Father because of his godly fear. Now, was Jesus afraid of God the Father? Well, of course not. Jesus had reverential awe and honor. He had a real sinless fear. And I want to contrast that with the problem of the sinful human race. In Romans chapter 1, verse 8, it says that the, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That word ungodly literally means no reverence, no fear. So the wrath of God is being incited against the sinful human race because of unrighteousness and ungodliness, this disregard of God. And that disregard of God can range from, you know, sort of a passive, oh, well, maybe God exists, I don't know, all the way on up to that fire-breathing atheist. It's that lack of of the due reverence, awe, honor, and fear that God is due. And yet, Jesus himself offered prayers and supplications for you, for me, with this reverential fear. As it says in verse 7, He was heard because of his godly fear. Aren't you glad that Jesus was heard? Let me read this verse for you. um, uh, Verse 7. And uh, from the Amplified Version, because I think it really brings out the the, uh, sort of high-definition Greek on this verse. Listen to this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up definite special petition, petitions for that which he not only wanted but needed, and supplications with strong crying and tears to him who was always able to save him out from death. And he was heard because of his reverence toward God, his godly fear, his piety, in that he shrank from the horrors of separation from the bright presence of the Father. Jesus did something very powerful, even in the manner of the way a good high priest, a perfect high priest, would offer up prayers and supplications for the people. Jesus is the compassionate high priest, offering up definite, special petitions, not just for himself, but as your high priest for you and for me. And look what Jesus did for us, crying out to God, as the great high priest in our behalf, those vehement cries and tears. Why did he go through all that suffering, persecution, pain, sorrow, and death? He did it for you. Those vehement cries and tears are for you. You see, Jesus fulfills all the requirements 
of a compassionate, praying, great high priest. Jesus fulfills all the requirements of a great high priest who totally depended upon the Father. And Jesus fulfills all the requirements of a great high priest who revered God. Verse 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, Jesus, again, continues to fulfill all of the great high priests, this time as a son. The covenant of law features priests who are sons of Levi, but the new covenant of grace features a high priest who is the son of God. He was a son. He is the son. The second part of verse 8 says, Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus fulfills all the requirements of the great high priest because he learned obedience by what he suffered. Now, friends, this does not imply that Jesus was not obedient prior to learning this type of obedience. It means that Jesus learned the obedience of suffering. Not only physical suffering and persecution, but the suffering of being separated from his father at the cross. This is yet another qualification that Jesus fulfilled to be our perfect high priest. Praise God. And then in verse 9, we read, And having been perfected, he, Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, stop right there. If Jesus was perfected, does that mean that Jesus was ever imperfect? Well, we have to look at the Greek word for perfected, and that Greek word is teleos, which means having reached its end, finished, complete, perfect. Again, this is a theme that is seen repeatedly through Hebrews. Jesus, you've got the righteous requirements of God the Father. All these necessary requirements to fulfill the righteousness of God and the righteous requirements of God, point by point by point. Imagine it almost as a checklist. And it's not Jesus who is checking things off. It's God the Father who is checking things off. And Jesus point by point fulfills each dimensions of this great salvation. Check check, 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 check. So this is another one of those checks. Jesus, having been perfected, having gone through everything that he did, uh, the suffering in this world, and you know, his suffering wasn't just suffering on the cross. I mean, just the fact that he had to endure the world of sinners was deep suffering for him. And He did it. He brought it to its end. So Jesus is the fulfilling of all, the satisfaction of all. And then it says in the second part of verse 9, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation. And again, it's helpful to know what the Greek word is for this word author. It's uh, itos which denotes, according to Vines, that which causes something. Eidos in Hebrews 
Verse 9 says, Vines describes Christ as the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, signifying that Christ, exalted and glorified as our high priest, on the ground of his finished work on earth, has become the personal mediating cause of eternal salvation. Vines continues by saying, It is difficult to find an adequate English equivalent to express the meaning here. Christ is not merely the formal cause of our salvation. He is the concrete and active cause of it. He has not merely caused or effected it. He is, as his name Jesus implies, our salvation itself. What what is being meant there? is that uh, our salvation isn't because of Jesus. Jesus himself is our salvation. That's what it means here where it says in verse 9 that Jesus is the author of the eternal salvation. That Greek word itos is that which causes something. It's not a formal cause. It's the active cause. Jesus is salvation. And Vine says, uh, uh, as uh, you know, implied by his name Jesus. You know what the name Jesus is. Now that's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Yahshua, and Yahshua literally means God saves. God is salvation. That's a radical, revolutionary idea. Jesus Himself is our salvation. He's not just the cause of our salvation. He is our salvation. You see, friend, your salvation is not an it. It is a him. It is Jesus, Yahshua, God saves. Let's look at this verse in the Amplified, verse 9. And his completed experience making him perfectly equipped, he became the author and source of eternal salvation to all those who give heed and obey him. And then it says eternal salvation. Now, this is not a temporary salvation or salvation until the next time you sin. You know, I have to confess with some embarrassment that for the longest time in my Christian life, a good 20 years, I believed that a Christian could lose their salvation. Now, on its face, the statement or the question, can a Christian lose their salvation? I would say, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I lose my keys. I even forget the name of my kids every once in a while. And it gets real embarrassing when I call one of the kids by the dog's name. (laughs) I'm not trying to mock here, but you really expect me not to lose my salvation? First of all, that cheapens salvation incredibly. My salvation is not an it that I keep. My salvation is Jesus. So the question isn't whether I can lose my salvation. The question is, can he keep it? And the answer emphatically throughout Hebrews and many other places of the scripture is absolutely he can. Why? Because he is salvation. All right, I need to move on. Verse 10 says, called by God as high priest, according to the order of of Melchizedek. Aren't you glad that Jesus is called by God? God has called him as high priest. Jesus didn't even do that. 
of his own accord. It was of the Father's doing. God himself called Jesus as high priest. And again, according to the order of Melchizedek, not the priesthood of Aaron, the old covenant law priesthood, which is a inferior priesthood offering inferior sacrifices that can only cover sins and not remove sins and therefore have to be repeated all the time, but a completely different priesthood. The priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the priest king. You see, the new covenant of grace is infinitely superior to the covenant of law because we have Jesus who is uh, a high priest that is the son of God. Jesus who is high priest forever. Jesus, who is a priest king in the order of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. Jesus, who is indeed a compassionate high priest. And Jesus, who himself is our salvation. Take a moment there. Let that soak in. And then it says in verse 11, of whom... Jesus as high priest, we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Oh boy, there's a problem here. (laughs) Um, I realize that this was an epistle that was written, but I suspect that the author of this uh, epistle, and we don't know the name of the person who wrote this, we certainly know the Spirit inspired this epistle, was familiar with a problem when he would share the the truths of the new covenant and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ as the compassionate high priest that he probably looked out in the congregation a couple times and noticed a few people sleeping or maybe a bunch of them with their eyes glazed over. It's kind of like, what is your problem? (laughs) You know, he desires to share so much more of the riches and the depths of this wonderful high priest, Jesus, and yet he's got a problem. These people can't take it. It's hard to explain because it says you have become dull of hearing. And I want you to note that, dull of hearing. It's almost as if a person can't hear clearly. You know, there are some folks, and maybe you're one of them, who suffer from some degree of deafness. Now, you can have a person who is completely deaf, and they can't hear a thing. But then you've got a lot of people who um, have difficulty um, hearing clearly. They many times have difficulty hearing in the upper frequencies of human speech. And so uh, they may ask you to repeat what you're saying and say it louder, please. Very likely, they have to to resort to hearing aids to clarify because they their hearing is dull. And there is there's a reason why someone's hearing would become dull. And we're going to get into this in the next uh, podcast. Um And I think it might surprise you because a lot of people look at these verses um, in the rest of Hebrews chapter 5 and think that this is dealing with spiritual immaturity, but it's dealing with a problem 
these people have. These people are not going on with God. And I'm going to kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit because they are not, they are, they have bought into a, uh, a Christianity, which is really no Christianity at all, which is based on their own performance, their own dead works. And I hate to say this, but this is very common in the body of Christ today, at least the uh, Western church. People hear endless sermons about what they're supposed to do or not do. Um, one theologian used this, came up with this great uh, term to describe the kind of preaching and teaching that is common in the, at least the American evangelical church today, and it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. And the idea of moralism is just teaching right from wrong. You know, you need to do these. This is the list of things you need to do. And here's the list of things you don't want to do. That's the moralism. It's moralistic. The therapeutic is a form of preaching that kind of makes your life feel better. It's almost like life coaching instead of preaching. It's like self-improvement, like a self-improvement course. And it's the last part of that is deism. Deism is this... uh, uh, theological viewpoint that God does exist, but what he did was at the very beginning in the creation, he created everything, wound up the clock, and left. And then it's all up to us. And I think that's a brilliant way of assessing the way the contemporary American evangelical church is. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. But real Christianity is Christ-centered. Remember what we said earlier In the last broadcast, and this is over in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that there has been this mystery which has has been hidden through generations, now revealed to the saints, uh, which is Christ in you, verse 27, Colossians 1, 27, the hope of glory. In other words, God's answer for you and for me is not a new self-improvement course. It's not a new list of uh, things we're supposed to do or not do. It is not this idea that, okay, you know what? God is out there somewhere, and you just got to kind of carry on without him. No, real biblical Christianity is Christ in us, alive, Christ alive in us the hope of glory. And what was the response of the Apostle Paul? He says, him we preach. Christ is being preached, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Yet what is the subject of endless messages that we hear in sermons on a Sunday morning? What is the endless topics that we hear in a lot of Christian programs? It's about not about Christ. It's not preaching and proclaiming him. It's preaching and proclaiming moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's dead. And that kind of preaching has inoculated people from being able to hear the glorious truth about Jesus. And when we start to to really unfold the truth and the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, a lot of people just sort of zone out. I'm going to tell a funny story to illustrate this. Several years ago, uh, I attended a class that a friend of mine was teaching on the subject of grace. Now, my friend is 
he's an energetic preacher. He's great. I just love the way he preaches, you know. He preaches with enthusiasm and he preaches, he was preaching the gospel of grace dead on. I mean, I had to keep myself contained from jumping up and saying, amen, brother, and carrying on. It was a great message. But the guy next to me, believe it or not, was falling asleep. His head was back, his mouth was open, and his reading glasses were falling off his face. I am not kidding you. And I had the hardest time keeping from laughing at this guy And I felt sorry for my friend who was teaching the class because he was trying to keep a straight face because this guy was making a fool. And I thought, how could he be sleeping through this? And it was like the Lord was saying, this dullness of hearing. They've heard so much, but they've heard the wrong things. They've heard a Christianity, which is no Christianity at all, all, which is Christian-centered instead of Christ-centered, which is performance-based instead of grace-based. And I believe that the uh, words that wrap up in uh, Hebrews chapter 5 are meant to almost be a slap in the face to those um, who are dull of hearing, to go, wake up. I'm not talking about moralistic therapeutic deism. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about your great high priest. Listen up. And yet he bemoans the fact that they can't take it because of this dullness of hearing. And we're going to get more into this subject in the next lesson and the problem of the emphasis of dead works rather than the living faith. I had mentioned this somewhat at the beginning of last, the last program. We're going to get into that in much more depth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that we are in a situation of life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the author and source of our salvation because he is salvation. Father, break through our dull hearing. Break through our minds that have been so clouded over with so many messages about our performance without focusing upon Jesus' performance already done. And Lord, we trust that you will do just that through your word and by your Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this great salvation. Thank you for the reality of Jesus. And Father, I confess, I need a deeper, clearer uh, understanding of this so that it has a deeper uh, level of impact in my experience, my walk as a Christian day to day. And I thank you, Lord, that you're going to do that because you're good. You have accomplished all through your son. And we thank you for your good work in us and through us because Jesus is alive and in us. In his glorious name we pray. Amen.